Well, church, good morning on the Spring Forward Sunday. My name is Mike, and I'm the site pastor for our Harbor Creek location. You know, I have a three and a one-year-old, and I've always had mild thoughts towards these uh, time change days, spring forward and fall back. Boy, that is until I had kids. Now I loathe them. So whether, whether you're a little bit groggy at one of our physical locations or you're watching on TV or Facebook or YouTube, you made it. Congrats, and I'm glad you're here. Well, I'm excited because today we'll be back in Romans 8 for the second of nine consecutive weeks looking into this famous chapter of the Bible. So go ahead and grab your Bible or your device and turn there now. Now before we get started, uh, Derek has articulated the preaching philosophy here at Grace to me and the other pastors. Uh, one of the best illustrations that he's given is this idea of the, the head, the heart, and the hands. Some messages and series speak to the, the hands, calling the church to action. Last year in April, I was fortunate enough to preach about this idea that God moves when His people mobilize. Some messages speak uh, to the heart and the emotions. Stories are uh, especially good at this. I preached on David and Goliath and about the Israelites and the walls of Jericho. Great stuff that speaks to our hearts. And now in this series, I get an opportunity to speak to our heads and our minds although hopefully in a way that also stirs up appropriate emotions within us and causes us to take action. But here's the thing. Derek Dunn messed up. He gave me just two verses and all of 30 minutes, so prepare yourself. We're going to talk about the Mosaic Law and Koine Greek tenses and all kinds of fun stuff. You guys down for that? Don't worry. If that didn't get you all jazzed up, you're in fantastic company. You should have seen the impressive eye roll my wife gave me when she heard this introduction. But I promise, even though we're going to go deep this morning, I'm going to do my best to do so in a way that doesn't go over anybody's head. Deal? Now, let me ask you a question before I read the passage. Can keeping God's law make you right with Him? Said another way, can meeting God's standard of behavior make you right with him. I want you to kind of take that question and, and put it in the back of your mind here while we get going. Because today we're going to be working through Romans 8 verses 3 and 4. And so naturally it's worth peeking back a little at chapter 7 to kind of get the context that we're working out of. There, Paul talks a lot about the law and sin before transitioning to a new topic. So these first four verses of chapter 8 serve as both a summary of the previous chapter and a transition to a new topic here in Romans 8, the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's reread the, the first two verses from last week, 1 and 2, and our verses for today, 3 and 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And today's verses. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, if you're, you probably heard the term law a lot in these verses, and you might be wondering, what does Paul mean here when he's talking about the law? Well, in mind here is what's called the Mosaic Law, all the way back from that guy Moses in the Old Testament. This is the long list of rules that we find when we read books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Has anyone ever read through the first five chapters of the Bible before? 
when you got to these chapters of rules, did you keep uh, falling asleep like I might have once or twice? That's it. That's the Mosaic Law. And I think this is what most people think about when they think of God's law. A list of do's and don'ts that we find in the Old Testament. A bunch of old, seemingly weird rules that have to be followed perfectly. Otherwise, the great headmaster will give you a slap on the wrist and shake his head. But here's the thing about the Mosaic Law. It was essentially a treaty, a formal agreement. It actually looks really similar to other treaties of the time that kingdoms made between each other. The Mosaic Law, the list of old weird rules in the Old Testament, was a treaty between God and ancient Israel. And in this agreement, it's clear. Obedience brought blessing and disobedience brought cursing. Read with me here in in Deuteronomy. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. These rules were for ancient Israel specifically at that time and that place in history. And I think that there's a lot of confusion around the Mosaic Law. You see, it was never meant to bring about salvation. These rules weren't ever meant to directly dictate the relationship that you and I have with God. Rather, it was only meant to regulate the relationship between God and the ancient nation of Israel. And guess what? The Israelites couldn't keep it. They failed continually, and despite God's repeated grace and mercy towards them, they were eventually conquered and exiled to a foreign land because they couldn't live up to God's standard. Naturally, the question should be asked, does the Mosaic Law even matter to us anymore? And I would say, yes, it absolutely does. Because Jesus said that uh, when he came to the Mosaic Law, In Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And by the way, when he says fulfill, Jesus also means that he raised the bar. He bumped the standard up a notch. In fact, he didn't just require better behavior. He required perfect behavior and thinking. Look at what he says about anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It's not just physical violence that deserves punishment. It's just the emotion of improper anger. Jesus does the same thing about lust when he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not the physical act of adultery that deserves punishment. It's just the looking. The lustful intent, the improper angry emotion, it's not just our outward actions which need to be perfect, but the motive in our hearts must be perfect too. Friends, that's God's real law, of which the Mosaic law was only a shadow. So again, considering all that, let me ask you, can you keep God's law? Not the list of rules in the Old Testament, which was hard enough to keep. Israel certainly couldn't. I'm talking about God's law that Jesus talked about, the one that requires perfect behavior and motives. 
perfect thinking at all times, perfection. After looking at what Jesus said, do any of us stand a chance? I think the clear answer is no. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, sin used the law as a mechanism for dooming us. That which God communicated to us for our good, a standard of behavior and a way to act that aligned with his design for us. The law, it was twisted by sin. Again, the chapter prior in Romans 7, 11, it says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. And how could sin twist God's good law? Through the weak flesh. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. I want to be a good husband. That's what God has asked of me, and that's what I want to do. But there have been times when my wife and I have been in a fight, and I thought of the exact words that will cut her down and hurt her deeply. And I know I shouldn't say it, but I did anyways. I want to be a good father. God has called me to it. But there have been moments when I've been stressed about so many things and got home and then my kids started disobeying or uh, even worse, maybe they were just acting like toddlers do, which should have been fine, but I wasn't in the mood and I screamed at them until I was red in the face. I want to be a good friend, especially to those who have sacrificed so much for me. I want to repay them for the kindness they've shown me. And yet there have been far too many instances of a friend in need reaching out and I was tired or busy or lazy, and I just ignored them. I've been doing this job long enough to know that I'm not alone. I think you also know deep down that you can't meet the requirements of God's law either. Not in your friendships, not in your marriage, not in your parenting, not in your job. Despite your best efforts, there are these sinful habits and tendencies that you just can't seem to shake. I feel you. Paul felt it too. Last week, Derek mentioned Paul's words early in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So, how is God able to reconcile the existence of sin in our lives, the clear disobedience of his good law with his presence and relationship? If the law can't get it done, how did God do it? Or should we ask, like Paul did, who? Well, before we read how God did it, let's think through uh, how God couldn't solve the problem. You know, God can't just forgive all sin. That would mean blanket pardons at no cost to murderers and rapists and abusers. Imagine sitting at the great eternal feast in heaven after Jesus comes back. Next to you sits uh, Hitler, the perpetrator and architect of one of the most profoundly evil acts in all of human history. The Holocaust, the horrible genocide of millions of people of Jewish descent, and so many others. Imagine sitting next to him in heaven and asking, how the heck did you get in here? And imagine he says back, yeah, I don't know. The big guy said it wasn't a big deal. Wipe my slate clean and let me in. What would your reaction be? Like, I don't know about you, but I can't fathom following a God with no sense of justice. That's just wrong. All sin must be punished, otherwise God isn't just. But here's the catch. If God punishes all of us for our sin, and we all have sin because we just established we can't live up to his law, boy, then we're all doomed. 
None of us can earn a seat at that great feast because we all must pay the penalty for our sin. Sin against an infinitely good God requires an infinite penalty. And the only way for us to pay that is with our souls in eternity separated from God. You see, there's a tension between God's love and justice. He created us to be in a relationship with him. With him. He wants us to be with us, to, to love us, to satisfy and fulfill us. But God must punish sin and serve justice. Otherwise, he's not truly good. Now, we're going to answer the how. The who. Remember uh, Pastor Sarah's sermon back in December about Jesus, the perfect sacrifice? Her big idea was, Jesus has solved your biggest problem. And here's how. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus was fully God, infinitely good and of infinite value, and yet this infinite and eternal God chose to come to the earth he created, as it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. This means that Jesus fully participated in the human condition, living just as we do. He was 100% God, but also 100% a human. He was hungry, thirsty, constipated, tired. He probably got the flu. He probably cut his hands up while he was doing carpentry to make a living working late hours into the night. He was fully exposed to the power of sin because he lived just like us. Yet in all of this, he did not sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's why when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he didn't pay the penalty of his own sins. Technically, he's the only person to have ever earned his way into heaven. Instead, he stood in our place as one of us. He paid the penalty for the sins of you and the sins of me. He took the deathly wages that we had earned. Jesus is human so he could stand in our place, and he is God so he could absorb the infinite penalty of our sin. He's the only one to check both boxes. By the way, the phrase in our passage, and for sin, it's, it's a little bit weird, but it's probably best translated as a sin offering, as in the sin offerings of the Mosaic law. It's through Jesus, the great and perfect sin offering, that the Mosaic law was finally fulfilled and sin was definitively condemned. Through Christ's flesh on the cross, sin was condemned. Through Christ's flesh, the weakness of our flesh was atoned for. Now hear this, church. When God condemned sin, he passed judgment on it. We aren't condemned, sin is. Remember, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love the way that the Bible translation called the message starts Romans 8.3. It says literally, God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. Some of you have played the video game Mortal Kombat, and for those of you who haven't, it's, it pits two characters against each other in a in kind of a mythical fight. And when your opponent runs out of health and you're ready to defeat him, you hear a deep-throated, finish him, before you get a chance to do your, your finishing move and knock him out for good. It sounds weird, but I can just hear that commentary in my mind as Christ completes his work on the cross and the veil is torn. The game is over for sin. There's no coming back. 
Ladies and gentlemen, your sin was nailed and whipped on the cross. In 2 Corinthians it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Sin was defeated. It was canceled. You need to realize that the war against sin has already been won. Sin is fighting a losing battle, not you. Your porn addiction is beaten. Your habit of mercilessly comparing yourself to others and what you see on social media is vanquished. Your anger problems are routed. The pride that fuels your unhealthy pursuit of accomplishment at work is slayed. All of your selfish and sinful habits lie dead at the feet of Jesus. These sins and every other one was whipped and nailed on the cross. If you are in Christ, you are in a position of strength. Did you give into temptation once again? Pick yourself up, friend. Keep fighting. We've got a victory prayed to march in in eternity. Do your circumstances have you grieving, worrying, retreating? Hold your head high. These light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Church, be encouraged. Remember, no matter what happens in this life, we are victors in Christ Jesus. Amen? So, what does this mean for us? We've already answered two questions. Why is the law unable to accomplish our salvation? And how did God do it instead? And so now comes the, uh, the what question. What does this mean for us? It means that we can fulfill the law with the Holy Spirit. Let's read again our passage. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The promise of Ezekiel 36 was originally for Israel, but it's also for us. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, will cause you to walk in a way that honors God. See, you can only truly fulfill God's law with the Holy Spirit on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. Only with the Holy Spirit can we display the perfect behavior and thinking and motives that God requires of his people. Church, here's my big idea this morning. Only with the Holy Spirit can you achieve God's standard. And we achieve this standard when we walk or live according to the Holy Spirit. Douglas Moo, a famous New Testament scholar, says that the verb walk in this verse is descriptive and not instrumental, meaning it only describes that Christians have met God's standard. It doesn't say how we met that standard. Our behavior doesn't suddenly become perfect after we claim what Jesus did for us on the cross. Us Christians, we still don't fulfill the righteous requirement of the law by walking in the exact right way, no matter how hard we try. Instead, We are those who have Christ's fulfillment of the law counted to us 
simply because we walk with the Holy Spirit. Simply because we're imperfectly walking with the Holy Spirit does God view us as perfect. No condemnation from Romans 8.1. No condemnation doesn't start at conversion and look backwards, and we've got to keep the score sheet clean from then on. It affects past, present, and future. You might be surprised to learn that I've not been uh, what one would call perfect in this role of pastor since I started last year. Uh, I'm sure Pastor Scott's probably somewhere snickering right now. You know, I've been privileged to sit in conversations with some of you and hear of the immense struggles and challenges in your lives. And I've also come face-to-face with some really difficult and weighty decisions. It's been wildly humbling because in each difficult conversation or decision I find my uh, or decision that I'm in, I find myself praying in my mind, God, what the heck do I do now? What do I say or do here that's encouraging and not depressing? Humble and not arrogant, firm but loving. Church, I've made mistakes. That's not even including uh, those in my marriage or my parenting that I mentioned earlier. I've made mistakes and I've had to ask for forgiveness. My walk with the, with the Spirit has definitely been imperfect. And you know what? I promise you it will continue to be imperfect. That's why I feel this, this great tension between the already and the not yet. In the Greek of our passage, Romans 8 through through 4, the sending and the condemning is in the past tense. God has already sent his son, and he has already condemned sin. But the walking with the Holy Spirit is in the present tense, implying we're not quite there yet. This long road of sanctification, a term that describes becoming holy and looking more and more like Jesus, this long road has quite a bit left ahead of us. And that can be depressing, at least for me, because we're just not quite there yet. But I want to look at the the Greek word uh, pleirothe, which is translated in our passage, might be fulfilled. It's in what's called the subjunctive mood, which usually gives the vibe of a, a likely or hopeful potential that's not yet fully realized. Something like, uh, I hope, or it should. But there is a nuance to this powerful, wor- powerful word because of the specific Greek clause, the specific grouping of words that it's in. Whenever this clause occurs in Scripture, it indicates both the intention of the verb and its sure accomplishment. There is no maybe or hoping or crossing of the fingers or uh, looks promising, but we'll have to wait and see. Absolutely not. There is no doubt in Paul's mind that the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us. Because of the Holy Spirit's influence in my life, I strive to be the best husband and father and pastor I can be. And when I come up short, as I often do, the Spirit picks me up, dusts me off, gives me a wink and a pat on the back, and we keep trudging along. The actions and outcome of my life don't determine whether I meet God's standard. Only the work of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, Don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean we can go hog wild and do whatever we want and bank on the Holy Spirit bailing us out. I I don't think that mindset comes from someone who's walking with the Holy Spirit. 
And so I think we need to ask, what does walking with the Holy Spirit look like? Well, Paul says in Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And then he launches into his famous passage about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he ends that famous section by saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. A Christian life that keeps in step and walks with the Holy Spirit is marked by these qualities, by these fruits. So how do we live a life like that? Well, I think the the first step is easier said than done, but it's pretty simple. It's to pray. You can't have a relationship with someone who you don't talk to regularly. At least uh, you're not going to have a good relationship. Talk with God in whatever way is most comfortable for you. Out loud, in your head, right in your journal, whatever floats your boat. And ask the Spirit to make His presence known as you go about your day. A second step is uh, to surround yourself with the means through which the Holy Spirit often speaks to us, which is His Word and His people. So I'd say, get into your Bible. The Holy Spirit uses God's words to enlighten and convict us. If it's hard to get this habit cemented in your life, don't worry, you're not alone. But might I offer a fantastic place to start is our read plans on the YouVersion Bible app. These quick devotionals follow our sermon series, and it's a great way to build this important rhythm into your life. And I know some of you were hoping that I'd forget about our memorization challenge for this series. Commit to memorizing portions or all of Romans 8, 18-39 with the rest of the church. Committing scripture to memory gives the Holy Spirit more tools to speak to you with. Third, I'd say get involved in Christian community. Join a life group and make connections with people beyond Sunday morning. Share life and go deeper together. I I can't tell you how many times the Holy Spirit has spoken to me through the words of a fellow Christian. We have a plethora of short-term life groups that are running for the duration of this sermon series. Join one and watch the Holy Spirit work. Finally, listen to and act on the Holy Spirit's promptings. And I know for some of you that sounds kind of weird, but get this. Some of those random thoughts you get about someone might actually be the Holy Spirit wanting you to pray for her or him. Those urges to reach out or provide an act of kindness might actually be the Holy Spirit wanting to minister to that person through you. The idea that, hey, there's a need in our Grace Kids ministry. Maybe I could make an impact serving there. Maybe it's all not so random and shouldn't be so quickly dismissed. We're really good in our Western, modernistic, rational culture at dismissing these kinds of things. But I tell you what, the Holy Spirit often works in this way. I can't tell you how many times I've been prompted to pray for someone uh, out in the lobby or reach out to someone with an encouraging message. I'm confident it's the Holy Spirit directing me. And the more I act on these promptings, the more aware I am of them, and the more I'm able to walk with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that this series is about life in the Spirit, and it might seem like we spent quite a lot of the time at the beginning talking about Jesus today. So far, the Holy Spirit has only been mentioned twice in the first four verses of Romans 8. But here's the thing. Buckle up. 
The Holy Spirit is going to be mentioned 13 times in the next 13 verses. But first, Paul, in his very logical way, gives a thorough treatment to the topic of sin and Jesus' defeat of it. That's because before we can walk with and have life in the Spirit, we have to understand the basis from which that is possible. Only after understanding this can we fully appreciate the work of the Holy Spirit. This was Paul's summary and transition, and for the next few weeks, we are going to dive headfirst further into the work and role of the Holy Spirit. Douglas Moo, uh, the, the theologian, said, The Spirit's liberating work takes place only within the situation created by Christ. And now that we understand the situation that Christ created, we can better look at the Spirit's liberating work in our lives. Because only with the Holy Spirit can you achieve God's standard.